Well, as we come to the word of God, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, the truths that we just sang indeed are more glorious than we can bear because we know deep down that there is a dark stain that we cannot hide, that there is sin so great that it rises to the heavens on each one of our accounts. And it is not possible for us to clean ourselves up. We can't get rid of that stain. Although we try and try. But we thank you for that crimson tide that has been opened for us. The fount from Christ by which we might be cleansed by his blood that we might know you as redeemed, as counted righteous in Jesus. Father, would you set our gaze upon Jesus this morning, turn our eyes upon him and cause the cares of our hearts, the turmoils of this world to grow strangely dim. In his name we pray, amen. Well, we live in a world in which to be tempted is to be human. We all know the experience of being lured to do something wrong, to do something we know we shouldn't do, and yet have a strong urge, a strong feeling towards doing it. Sin is placed before us like a bait on a hook, and we, like hungry fish, bite right onto it and are captured. But as James reminds us in James chapter 1, that giving in to temptation is not just a little mistake, it's not just a little oops, but giving in to temptation begins us on a pathway that leads to death. And we all know that fighting temptation is hard. These inner urges and these desires that we have, it's hard to say no. The sin can look so good. And frankly, we'd rather just give in to that temptation than fight it one second longer. If I just give in now, then I can move on and I don't have to be in this uncomfortable place. But we give in to the sin, we bite onto the hook because mankind has fallen. We are inherently sinful. We're dead in our sin. And therefore, on our own, in our flesh, can only fulfill our lusts. We only have one option available to us, and that is to go after sin. And this is why we see the world the way that it is. Because people who are fallen and lost simply can only go after their sin, can only fulfill their lusts in their own strength and in their own power. Sin rages all around us. And... Mankind bites the bait every time. And it's this fact that mankind gives into temptation so easily that makes the account of Jesus' temptation so remarkable. He is a human just like us. He had physical, a physical body with bones and blood vessels. He had emotions like we do. 
experience joy and anger. And yet, in all of this, he was innocent. He was without sin. And in this way, he was like Adam and Eve, in the sense that they had an unstained human nature. And yet, when he was tempted, he refused to give in one inch to the devil. He outlasted all of the devil's attacks. And so this morning, we're going to examine more closely the exchange that we started to look at last week between Jesus and Satan in Luke chapter 4. And if you're not there already, I invite you to open your copy of God's holy inspired word to Luke chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4. This account of Jesus' temptation stands between his baptism and the genealogy that Luke gave us in chapter 3 on one side, and on the other side of the temptation is the beginning of his public ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth. And what, we'd already, what we've already seen in Luke chapter 3 is that the, at his baptism, the Spirit descended on him, marking him out as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, and the Father spoke from heaven, verbally designating this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as his beloved son. So he's God's son by nature of God's own declaration. And we also remember that at the end of the genealogy in Luke 3, you can see it there, the, the last verse of, of, of Luke 3, that it designates Jesus as the son of God. And so we have multiple confirmations that Jesus is this unique son of God. But the temptation of Jesus now comes next. And what the temptation does is put the claims of sonship to the test. Is he truly the son of God? We need to see. Let's read our passage before us. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, and we set the stage for this showdown between Jesus and the devil. And just to to jog your memory, we talked about the fact that it was God who set up this meeting. God is the one who arranged for Satan and Jesus to meet in the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led there by God, the Spirit. 
We also talked about the fact that the devil is a real being. He's not just some uh, figment of the imagination, but he was a physical being who's been opposing God and his kingdom since the beginning. And we, we looked at how Jesus fought these temptations in the power of the Spirit. That it's clear by the Spirit being mentioned twice in these opening verses that he did not fight these temptations in his own strength. But he fought them in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was the Spirit-anointed Messiah. God was with them. Acts chapter 10, we looked at last week, verses 37 and 38. And therefore, because God was with him, he was able to do the amazing things that he did. And because he depended on the Holy Spirit, because he relied on the Spirit, we can follow in his footsteps, as Peter commands us to do in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, as we come and we look at the devil tempting mankind, we need to remember the last time that the devil spoke to a human being was in Genesis chapter 3. And it was there that he tempted Adam and Eve into rebelling against their creator. And now, Jesus of Nazareth must undergo a similar temptation as Adam did. But if we think just for a moment between the the temptation that Adam went through and the temptation that Jesus went through, and you think of the fact that the circumstances and environment that between the two of them, Jesus was at a disadvantage. Adam was in a perfect lush garden. Jesus was in the barren wilderness. Adam had an abundance of food all around him and you could argue was sufficiently filled. He had all these trees available to him that he could fill to his heart's delight. Jesus, on the other hand, had no food at his disposal and was thus very hungry. And yet, in spite of the disadvantages, Jesus will prove to be the victorious second Adam. He will be the one who will succeed where Adam, the first Adam, failed. And so with the stage set, let's watch this combat unfold. And so in the remaining verses, verses 3 through 13, we're going to look at three temptations that Jesus suffered Three temptations that Jesus suffered. And by looking at these, this will help us to rejoice. To rejoice and to glory in the victory that Jesus has accomplished. We need to uplift Jesus. We need to celebrate the victory that he has accomplished. And by looking at these temptations will help us do that. So the first temptation that we see, the first way Jesus was tempted, is he was tempted to doubt God's care. He was tempted to to doubt God's care. We see this in verses 3 through 4. In verse 3, the devil begins a conversation with Jesus. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I believe the devil here is not just a vision. I believe he's stood before him in some sort of form. Genesis 3 calls him a serpent. Here, we don't know what form he may have took, but there was clearly a, a, a someone, something standing there before Jesus, and they were going back and forth in conversation. Now, in this first temptation, Satan decides to attack Jesus in a vulnerable point because he knows that Jesus is in a weakened state. He's, he's fasted for 40 days. He hasn't eaten, and, and Luke makes it clear that when those 40 days were over, he was hungry. And so Satan goes, oh, you're hungry, huh? Well, let's see if I can't pull you in with a, with a food temptation. He tries to 
use the appetite of Jesus against him, knowing that Jesus, having been truly, fully human, he's got a human appetite. And we all know those hunger pains. In fact, by the end of this service, you all will probably feel them as you're ready for lunch. But, and so he begins by questioning Jesus, saying, if you truly are the Son of God, now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Satan doubted whether Jesus was God's son, but just that he's, he's testing or challenging that claim. In essence, he's saying, if it's true as God has declared at your baptism that you are his beloved son, then prove it. If you are the son of God, then prove it. And Satan then commands Jesus to speak to the rock and turn it to bread, turn it to a loaf of bread. This is a direct challenge to Jesus' sonship. Satan says that Jesus will prove his sonship by manifesting his power and turning the stone into bread. And this was an attempt by Satan for Jesus to turn his spirit-given power to meet his own needs. The miracles that Jesus performed, think about this, the miracles that Jesus performed in his time here on earth always benefited others. Jesus never did magic tricks in order to make his own life more comfortable. He did these things to benefit others and to prove his sonship. And yet here the devil wants him to take that power and to, and to turn it and to accomplish his own will instead of his father's. This turning uh, stones into bread was not something the Father had told him to do. This was something that Satan was wanting him to meet his own needs and to satisfy himself. But there's more going on here. By encouraging Jesus to provide food for himself, Satan is impugning the character of God. Satan is saying something about the Father by telling the Son to make a stone into bread. The devil's twisted logic goes something like this. He says, you are God's son, but it seems that like he's abandoned you out here. What kind of care is this? What kind of father puts you in this kind of situation? You had better look out for yourself because this father isn't looking out for you. You see, in each of these temptations, Satan is trying to put a rift between the father and the son. He's attacking the very fabric of the triune God. But the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in dependence upon the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, upholds the character of his Father, the first person of the Trinity. It's remarkable that in each of Jesus' responsible, uh, responses rather to the devil, he doesn't come up with his own words. He doesn't preach his own message. He quotes Scripture. This, Jesus' words instantly go to the Bible. He preaches the word of God to the devil in order to, to ward off the devil's attack and to show the devil that he's wrong, but also to confirm Jesus in his faith in his heavenly Father and to stand firm in the attack. Now, each reply that Jesus gives to, this, to Satan comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the book of Moses written after 40 years of wandering in the desert for the children of Israel. And Moses writes down the law again 
for the people, for the nation. He reminds them of all that they should have learned through their exodus out of Egypt and through their wandering through the desert. Listen, Israel, you should have learned some things. I'm about to go away, Moses says, but here's some things that you need to remember as you enter the land. And so here in Jesus' first reply, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Jesus replied, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus has been wandering again for 40 days through the wilderness. He's been being tested just like Israel was tested. Israel was tested for 40 years in the desert. Jesus is tested for 40 days. But unlike Israel, he received no food. Remember, Israel received manna from God to eat. But Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 makes it clear that Israel was supposed to receive manna in order to learn that everything for life comes from the mouth of God. That even though God provides food, that ultimately it comes from God himself. What they needed more than food was dependence on the Lord. There's a deeper reality than the physical dimension. You need to think not just about your stomachs, but your souls. And even though Israel never truly learned this, Jesus did. Jesus had meditated on his Old Testament, on his Bible, and knew that man does not live by bread alone. And so, as the perfect Israelite, he believed the truth, and he lived according to it. He knew that his father had not abandoned him. He had just heard days before his father speak from heaven in an audible voice to him to tell him that he was the father's beloved son. And he was clinging to that word. He never doubted it for a moment. He was in that moment living by the word of God. Living by the word of the Lord. And he was accomplishing his father's will. It was like he will say later in his ministry, as quoted in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what satisfies me. That's what keeps me going, is to do the will of my Father. For Jesus, life is doing God's will, not providing for self. Let me say that again. For Jesus, life is doing God's will, not providing for self. And yet, mankind, by his very nature, sees life as providing for self. Jesus came to turn that on its head. This is how Adam and Eve should have lived. Living to do God's will instead of providing for self. This is how Israel should have lived. Instead, they saw the meeting of daily needs as more fundamental than obedience to the word of God. They relegated dependence on God's word as a secondary matter and placed their own needs as a primary matter. And yet Jesus lives by the word of God. And there's much here that is instructive for us. Can we not identify with this temptation? That there's a possibility that God may have, have abandoned us you see, the devil seeks to impugn the character of God and cause us to believe that because certain physical needs are not being met in our lives, then he must be breaking his word. He must be forgetting about us. He tempts us to look for physical, earthly solutions instead of depending upon the Lord. We can begin to question whether God is for us. We can begin to doubt 
whether God truly loves us. And we can think that he has abandoned us. And this especially happens when suffering comes our way, when there's difficulty in our lives. But you see, as humans, as image bearers of God, we were created to live according to the word of God. We were created to be dependent on his word. And so through the Spirit's power, we must cling to God's word, even when our circumstances are pleasant or when they're painful. We must cling to God's word when we are happy or when we're hurting. We must cling to God's word when we're confident and when we're confused. Because no matter what is going on in our lives, we need to cling to the truths of the word that says that we are loved by God because we are in Christ. That God, our Father, knows our every need. He hasn't forgotten about us. He knows what's going on in each one of our individual circumstances. And he will never leave us or forsake us. We have that promise to cling to through every moment of our lives. These truths and many more must be our daily food. And therefore, the word of God must be our daily meal. And so I ask you, are you depending on God's word? Are you clinging to his promises? Or are you allowing your emotions and circumstances to dictate your view of God right now? Satan would love to drive a wedge between you and your God. To have you forget about the truth that he's declared. And to think about the lies that he puts there. Friends, we must meditate upon the word of God. And let that be our daily food. But more importantly than us clinging to the word, we must see here in this text that it's only because Jesus did not give in to this temptation that we can know the Father. You see, it's only because Jesus never doubted the Father's care that we can even know the Father's care ourselves. It's because Jesus succeeded here that we can even be entered into knowing this wonderful, loving, life-giving Father who cares for every need. We must see the Son's victory here as the, the pathway to our own life. Because he was a faithful son to the end, we can be called children of God. In other words, we should see these verses and say this. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory. Thank you for denying that temptation so that I might know your Father too. You see, each of these temptations, in each of these, our salvation was at stake. If Jesus gave in to any one of these, you and I have no life. You and I have no salvation. If Jesus failed any one of these tests, then he would not be righteous and he would not be our Savior. But all praise to him, for he is the mighty warrior who has triumphed victoriously. Amen? So firstly, Jesus was tempted to doubt God's care, but he didn't give in. Secondly, we see he was tempted to reject God's plan. He was tempted to reject God's plan. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Now these next two temptations, Luke and Matthew have flipped around and it seems best that Matthew probably has the, the true chronological order. He gives uh, sequence words such as then and helping us to know what comes next. 
But Luke here is ordering it for his purposes. He ends his order of temptations in the final one being in Jerusalem at the temple. And that seems to accord with Luke's theme that he begins his book in the temple and he's going to end his book. The final verse mentions the temple and the temple plays a key role in his book. And therefore, it seems that he ordered the temptations to end at the temple. But the order is not crucial. What Luke has recorded here as the second temptation is that he takes Jesus to a high place and to show him the kingdoms of the world. Look in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now Matthew records that it's a high mountain. We don't know what this place is, but there seems, seems to be a supernatural vision that Satan plays out before Jesus. Not only because there's no mountain in which you can see all the kingdoms of the world, even at that time, all at the same time. But also, it says that he showed him in a moment of time. There was like this, this flash reel of a quick film of all these kingdoms all at once and shows it to, to Jesus. And the, after showing him all these kingdoms in a moment of time, he says, verse 6, to you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. He then says that he will give Jesus all this authority, all this glory of the nations. He claims that these kingdoms uh, are his, that they've been given to him, and he can hand them over to whomever he wills. But we need to ask the question, is this true? Does Satan really have this kind of authority? Does have all, has all of this been given to him, and can he give it to whomever he wills? Well, it's true that in Scripture, he is, Satan is called the ruler of this world. John 12, verse 31. He's also called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. And it says in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there is a sense in which the, the Satan has a certain amount of authority, a certain amount of power here in this, in this planet. But while God has given Satan a certain amount of freedom and authority to work his evil intent, his claim here seems to be overstated. To say that he's got ultimate sovereignty over all these kingdoms and that he can just hand it out to whomever he wills. And I believe this is an example of one of his lies. Because Jesus says in John 8, 44, that he is the father of lies. And therefore, you always need to be looking for Satan to be saying something that's wrong. So yes, does he have some authority? Yes. But does he, is he the, the sovereign distributor of all that authority? It doesn't seem so. But like a good salesman, he lays out the goods, shows them all nice and shiny, before he reveals the catch before he shows the hook. In this case, the catch is that Jesus would be required to bow down and to worship Satan. Verse 7, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. We need to ask ourselves, won't this authority and the glory of the nations be Jesus' possession in the end anyway? It's promised that dominion over the nations would go to the Messiah. 
Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Yahweh, the Lord, speaks to his Messiah saying this. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the question is not whether or not Jesus will be king over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's going to happen. The question at play here is what route is Jesus going to take to make that a reality? What are the means to that end? Satan here is presenting Jesus with one route to that position. It's a route to glory that was different than the Father had planned. We know that the Father's plan was for Jesus to be despised and be rejected of men, as Isaiah 53 says, to go to the cross, to die, and then to be raised as Lord. And he would return one day to receive all the nations as his possession, ruling them with a rod of iron. And so Satan comes to a physically weakened Jesus, fresh out of his obscure life out of Galilee. I mean, just think about it. He's lived 30 some odd years up working in his father's shop there in Nazareth, caring for his family, going to synagogue, doing a normal Jewish life. Just a, a few days to a couple weeks ago has left that the river to be baptized, is now led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and now comes face to face with God's arch enemy. And Satan offers him a crown without a cross. Satan offers him a crown without a cross. You can rule all these nations, and you can have it right now. It'll be easy. It's less costly, Jesus. This is a better plan. It's easier. He wants Jesus to reject God's plan and seize power on his own instead of following the will of God. But Satan's offer is deadly. To worship Satan would be apostasy on the part of God's son. And you need to know Satan is not just asking for one little dip of his knee He's asking for full-fledged allegiance. He's asking Jesus to confess Satan as the supreme authority and as the one possessing all sovereignty. And that is blasphemy. Jesus did not fall for Satan's tricks. He saw the tasty fruit and the poison it contained, and he rejected it. And he replies by quoting from Deuteronomy again, this time from chapter six, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It says, verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus remembers and believes what Israel forgot and disobeyed. Israel many times fell into adultery and idolatry, choosing to worship the demonic gods of Baal and rather than follow Yahweh. But Jesus is driven by the Spirit and directed by the Word of God. And therefore, he knows he must give his allegiance and his worship and his trust to the Lord alone. Once again, Satan tries to destroy the relationship between the Father and the Son. But no offer is great enough to persuade Jesus to abandon his Father. He holds true to the one who is good and believes his word. This battle surrounding this second temptation reminds us that we too can be tempted to reject God's plan. We too can be tempted to take shortcuts. We know God's word says to wait upon the Lord and he will give these things to us. These blessings will be ours. But we can be tempted to take shortcuts and think that we can achieve it a different way. 
There are many things which we know are good. God's word has, has told us are good. And yet we can be tempted to grasp for them in our own timetable and in our own way. We can look to acquire good things through evil means. We can look to acquire good things through evil means. can desire a good thing, such as about a good thing. Or someone can desire a good thing, such as a, a ministry position, let's say. But the temptation is to not wait upon the Lord and for that to occur naturally within the church, but to rather through manipulation and self-promotion to try to get that ministry position or job promotion or fill in the blank. We can want good things, but we can be tempted to go about them in evil ways. And we can, we can go on. We can multiply this. You just have to look around. Most of the sin we see in our own lives and the lives around us are people that, that where there's a kernel of a good thing, a kernel of a truth, but we're looking to go about it in the wrong way. And when we embark, embark on a mission to get a good thing in the wrong way, we have switched allegiances. We are no longer walking in the way of the Lord. We are no longer being faithful to God and to his word. And yet, being faithful to God requires obeying him all the way through. We go the direction he wants in the way he wants it. We wait upon him. We study his word. We seek to follow his will. This is what Jesus did, and this is what we must do as well. Say, God, I know you want these good things for me. How do you want me to acquire them? And pray that he would work his will to bring that about. But as we see this second temptation, we realize that, again, it's only because of Jesus' success and victory here that you and I have life and salvation. It's only because Jesus accepted the Father, Father's plan and rejected Satan's that we have a blessed future open to us. The fact that there is a plan of God for us that does not include condemnation and destruction. The fact that there is a plan for you that includes eternal life is because Jesus did not give in to this temptation. We can only walk victoriously because Jesus did so first. If Jesus had given in here, we'd have no salvation. If he had accepted Satan's plan, there would be no cross and there would be no salvation. But praise to him, for he triumphed victoriously. Amen? Well, first we saw that Jesus was tempted to doubt God's care. Secondly, we've seen that Jesus was tempted to reject God's plan. Both of those he rejected. Thirdly, and finally this morning, he was tempted to force God's hand. Jesus was tempted, thirdly, to force God's hand. And we see this in verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9. And he took, took him, he being the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now this third and final temptation, as Luke records, involves travel to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't know whether this was a public event in other words, if there were people that were down on the ground looking up at the pinnacle of the temple, they would have seen two figures up there. Uh, therefore, for others to be able to watch what was going on, or whether they were essentially uh, spiritually there alone, the text doesn't say. 
But what we do know is that the precipice was real. The distance from the top of the pinnacle of the temple down to the ground was a real distance so, so that if anyone were to fall off of that, it would be their certain death. Scholars tend to think that this pinnacle of the temple refers to the southeast corner of the temple known as Solomon's Portico. This corner overlooks the Kidron Valley, and therefore there is a drop of about 450 feet from the top of the portico to the valley floor, long enough to destroy any man who jumps off. And once again, the devil returns to challenge Jesus' sonship. Since, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he backs up his command by quoting Scripture. Holds a fast one. Quotes Psalm 91. Two verses that describe God's protection of his saints in difficult times. And while there's certainly a a certain amount of understandable logic to Satan's command, he's misapplied God's word. Get this. He quoted the word of God correctly, but he applied it wrongly. God did say, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And he did say, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's not a misrepresentation. What was wrong was Satan using that verse in order to force Jesus to do something that would force God's hand to to show some sort of miraculous power. Just because God has promised to protect his people does not mean that his saints can then force God's hand and put themselves in unnecessary danger in order to see him act. Throwing ourselves off to see if God will be true to his word. We know God's true to his word. We don't need to put God to the test to prove that. And yet that's exactly what the devil wanted Jesus to do. The devil wanted Jesus to hear his temptation and think, yeah, if I am God's son, he's promised to protect me. Let's see if he'll do it. Let's see if he'll stay true to his word. But Jesus thought no such such thing. He saw right through this temptation and calls Satan on it. He says this, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He he shows that to do such a thing would be wickedly forcing God to act according to Satan's desires. Satan being in control of, of wanting God to do something. He's putting God to the test to accomplish Satan's agenda. And he says, that is wrong. You shall not do that. And after this last parry by Jesus, says that the devil departed. Verse 13. The devil having ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This ending and this departing would be seen as should be seen as total defeat. Satan goes away with his tail between his legs. He was not victorious. He was not able to crack the nut. He was not able to best Jesus. Luke adds that Satan left until an opportune time. Satan continued to tempt Jesus. His, His work of derailing the Son of God from his mission was not done. We don't have any other accounts of of these external kind of temptations, probably occurred more internally, but we see Satan's 
activity throughout the book and particularly ramp up as Jesus gets closer to the cross. You understand why. So Jesus finishes this wrestling match on top. At this point, there are still several steps in the final defeat of Satan. Satan is still active here after he leaves. He's still powerful. He's still able to to call out his minions, his demons, to go and attack people. And we see that throughout the book. But there has been a fatal blow here. Jesus has proved himself to be the greater Israel. He's proved himself to be the greater Adam. And therefore, he's perfectly qualified to lead a host of captives to victory. He is the Messiah Israel's been waiting for. He is the Redeemer that the world needs. He is the Savior that you and I need. And once again, we return to the fact that Jesus' victory in these temptations is directly tied to our salvation. We see this in the book of Hebrews. I want to draw your attention to two passages in Hebrews. First, Hebrews chapter 2. You can turn there, Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18. What the book of Hebrews makes clear is that Jesus is the perfect Savior precisely because he was tempted. Yes, he was the perfect Savior because he went to the cross. And he died for you and I, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. But his temptation and the suffering he experienced during that temptation was, is directly tied in. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he, being Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus is the great high priest. He makes propitiation for our sins, but it's because he himself suffered when tempted that he is able to help us when we are tempted. He is able to be our rescuer. We see this also later on, a couple chapters in Hebrews chapter 5. Turn to Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Although he was a son, although he was a son, we know from our text that we've been studying that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, right? The confirmation, the affirmation is made over and over again. And yet, the author of Hebrews here says, Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus suffered when tempted. And because of that, he learned obedience. Now, he didn't have to learn obedience like you and I do, which is we've got to put aside our sin and we've got to learn obedience righteousness, Jesus had to be tested and and, and grow in his obedience in new ways that he had never had to grow in before. 
And it was through that obedience, each challenge that came his way, each step of his earthly life as he was challenged to obey the Lord in new and fresh ways, all the way up until being obedient to death upon a cross, he learned to follow the Lord's will and not his own. And through that, he became the perfect Savior. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Friends, because Jesus vanquished the enemy here in these temptations. He was able to be our Savior, and therefore He is deserving of all of our praise and all of our worship, for no one else holds that title. No one else was able to vanquish the foe like Jesus. And so, we must look to Christ, turn our eyes to Him, and and focus our worship upon him and him alone because he is our perfect savior. Let's bow together. Oh God, we thank you for your word that gives us your truth, your unvarnished, undiluted truth that we might see clearly who you are. We might know you as Father, Son, and Spirit, that we might know and see how Jesus was our perfect Savior. Oh, Jesus, we praise you this morning that you defeated Satan. You ultimately defeating him at the cross, but here at your temptation, denying and rejecting every one of his temptations, holding fast, not giving an inch, and showing your glistening righteousness unstained by sin. And Jesus, we, we praise you and worship you as our Lord this morning. And Father, we ask that by your Spirit this week, you would help us to walk in the victory of Christ, to know that he helps us in our temptation, and that the Spirit is there helping us to remember the Word of God, to cling tightly to it, and to reject the lies of the enemy. Give us victory that we might give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.